Hello, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, an interview with James Dawes. He's a professor of English at McAllister College who doesn't just teach and write about literature, but also about human rights, violence, and trauma. In 2008, James Dawes went to Japan to speak to some veterans of what's called the Second Sino-Japanese War. It was a campaign of conquest and terror that Japan waged in China in the years leading up to and during World War II. Now, the men that Jim met in Japan were just a few among thousands who had committed genocide in China, but uh, they were part of a very select group, the ones who actually wanted to talk about what they'd done. They hoped that others might learn from their misdeeds. So Jim and his interpreter and a photographer spent days sitting and listening to these very old men as they recounted the crimes they'd committed six or so decades before. It was an experience that left Jim shaken and wondering for years, and it has taken him a while to get around to writing about it. But he has done that. He has written a book called Evil Men, and uh, I should hasten to say that that title is not so much a statement as it is an invitation to question. Jim poses a lot of questions in his book about the conditions that can turn seemingly ordinary men into apparent monsters and then back into seemingly ordinary men again, about what it means to atone for terrible harm, if atonement is even possible, and also what it means for the rest of us to bear witness, to sit in judgment, to consume and assimilate and retell stories of atrocity for our own reasons. And in the spirit of that last question, I started by asking Jim to retell one of the stories he heard in Japan, the one that still haunts him the most. I spoke to one of the men, a man named Kaneko-san, about one of his early experiences in the war. Uh, he had been involved in some combat, and the, the village eventually was pacified. And so one of the first things that they wanted to do, the older soldiers, when a village was pacified, was to go into the village and find the women so they could rape them. So uh, he, he followed the soldiers in, and they found a house, and they said, you stand outside the store, you wait here and guard. And eventually it was over, and they came out dragging the woman by her hair. They said, Kaneko-san, come here, grab her legs. And so he, he joined them and grabbed her legs, and they walked out to the village well, and they threw her into the well. At that point, Kaneko-san heard a noise. It was kind of a, a clattering sound. And he turned, and he saw it. it was a young boy, about four years old, who was dragging a stool across the cobblestone of the village, because that boy had been in the house when they had done those things to his mom, and he'd seen it happen. And he'd seen them drag her to the well and throw her in. And being a scared four- or five-year-old boy, he just wanted to be near his mom. And so he pulled up the stool to the well and cried out for his mom and then jumped in. And they watched for a few seconds, and then they threw in a grenade and blew them both up. The man you call Kanekasan threw in the grenade? Yeah, his, his superior officer told Kaneko-san to throw the grenade. Kaneko-san was one of roughly a dozen men you met in Japan. That's right. And who told you their stories of what they did in the war against China in the 30s and, and 40s, right? 1930s right. and 40s. And by the way, you use the honorific Kaneko-san. The san, you know, is a respectful term. Yes, that's right. Is it weird for you to you know, speak respectfully of someone who did things like this? It was incredibly confusing. The whole experience was vertigo. 
because on the one hand, these were historical monsters. I mean, they did the worst things imaginable. Medical experiments on captured civilians, Dr. Mengele type stuff, torture, rape, the most barbaric acts you can imagine. And they were also, when we met them, these frail, old, kind men who were sorry, who were sorry for what they'd done, and they were dying, and they wanted to apologize. And so we would enter their homes, and it would be, it'd be like visiting friends. We'd, we'd meet their family, their kids, their grandkids. We'd share gifts and food. And if you watched us talking, it would be for all the world as if we were just sharing stories about children. But instead, we were listening to them talk about how they killed other people's children. And so we were constantly shifting back and forth between this, this sense of responsibility to the, to the victim and our sense of responsibility to these vulnerable men in front of us. This is a very special category of uh, Japanese war criminal. They have a special name. The Chikorin. Chikorin. Tell me what happened to them after the war. So they were captured. Most of them were sent to prison in Siberia, which was extremely brutal. They talked there about people dying from cold, from beatings, from starvation, from depression. And they were there five years. After five years in Siberia, they were transferred to a prison camp in China, a place called Fushun. And here, a very different experience awaited them. In America, we would call it Chinese brainwashing. Uh, there, they called it spiritual liberation. They were trained in communist philosophy. They were trained in pacifism. They were trained to believe that the imperial war was wrong. And they spent five years there learning to, I guess, convert and, and repudiate who they'd been. So when they were finally released, they came back to Japan with this sense both of guilt and shame for what they'd done, and a sense that it was their responsibility to tell the world what had happened. But in Japan, nobody wanted to hear. And so they spent their lives in social exile in Japan, not because they had done these things, but because they wanted to talk about having done them. How many of those Chikorin are there, or were there? There were about a thousand, as I recall. There's not many left now. I mean, when we met them in their 80s and 90s, some died while we were traveling over to see them. Some died while I was writing the book. I, I don't think there are many surviving. Hmm. A thousand initially, though, out of many thousands of Japanese soldiers, officials, and others who were part of that campaign in China that killed millions of people. Yes, yes, yes. So these these guys had been through a whole program of thought reform, of re-education, uh, managed by the Chinese over a course of years, and were sent back to Japan to, in effect, advocate for peace and friendship with China and against war and barbarity. That's right. I, I don't think most people in the West know about that. It's remarkable. I mean, there are two remarkable things about it. First, that this was happening essentially during what we think of as World War II. And things that happened then amount to genocide. The rape of Nanking, as it's often referred to in America, in which about 300,000 civilians were murdered. These things are largely are not part of our memory of World War II. So that's, that's part of what's remarkable. Yeah, and that the country to whom they had, or on whom they had inflicted this genocide, like I say, millions killed, and killed in the most horrible conceivable ways, a kind of holocaust. I mean, that country then, apparently, when they were in prison in, in China, they were treated very well, gently, right? I mean, they weren't tortured, they weren't... 
they recall being treated as well as uh, the Chinese who were there with them, as well as the Chinese staff, the food, the education, the cultural events, the sporting events. And many found it thrilling. I mean, many of these men who'd been captured had high school education, and, and now they're getting lectures on Marx and Lenin, and, and, and they found it a spiritually transforming experience. It's important to keep in mind that the U.S. has its own experience of, of, of that type of camp. The policy was called the lenient policy, and it's what we believe happened to U.S. soldiers um, in the Korean War. And from the perspective of the U.S., this is brainwashing. They are treated well in some ways, so they can be broken down easier in others. And there's reasons to believe that the techniques they used, which include constant criticism, public shaming, that these come at cost to one's integrity and one's mental well-being. But for the men who went through it, at least these men, they entered monsters, as they called themselves, demons, and they saw that as necessary correction to become full and complete people afterwards. Well, where do you, as a guy who works in the human rights field, stand on this? I mean, the range of uh, possibilities for treating convicted war criminals runs from capital punishment and, and various forms of you know misery and torture to this Chinese treatment, which involves repentance and atonement and then advocating for pacifism and becoming anti-war you know, spokespeople afterwards. That's quite a range there. Where would you say this stands? Is it brainwashing? Well, so I, I, I hesitate to endorse anything that says brainwashing, partly because when these men came back to China, nationalists and, and historical revisionists wanted to deny that any crimes had committed, that any had been raped, any had been killed. They, they wanted to pretend this had been all honorable battle. And, and so when they came back, these men were accused of being communist brainwash victims, and people dismissed them. And so I think it's really important to be able to hold two things simultaneously in, in our minds. One, that, that these men are speaking the truth, and that they were also subjected to what I think anybody would acknowledge is a, a, a relatively brutal form of psychological indoctrination. Oh, brutal. Psychologically brutal. Huh. Not, not physically brutal. Huh. So maybe similar to techniques that the Chinese used on their own people in, say, the Cultural Revolution. I think, I think similar, yeah. Self-criticism, so-called. Right, constant surveillance, uh, constant pressure, being separated from people who are considered reactionaries, these people who, who refuse to repent, um, breaking people down individually. In this case, it's bizarre because basically they were brainwashed into thinking torture and murder and rape is wrong. <laughs> you know, by the way, I don't want anybody to, to mistake what I'm saying for an endorsement of, say, Chinese indoctrination techniques. But on the other hand, if what's being done is to re-educate people into a moral point of view that we can all agree with, isn't that what we want, too? It would be nice to imagine that our current system of international justice had some idea and hope of reform, but I think we're a long ways away from that. Well, let me back up, Jim, and just ask you what you were doing in Japan gathering this testimony from these these old reformed war criminals and, to use the French term, genocidaires, uh, what were you doing there in the first place? I had been contacted by a photographer, Adam Nadell, who w was doing some visual work, a, a visual study of, of war crimes around the world, and this was part of what he wanted to do. Um, and because this, this set of people involved much more than images, I mean, it really involved men who wanted 
their confessions to be shared with the world. They wanted a Western writer to come along because I think they feel like they haven't been really heard, even in Japan, but certainly internationally. And so he was going to photograph them, and he, he, he wanted to bring a writer along for that part of the project. And, and so he contacted me. Um, so it was really a matter of just the very small world that, that is the world of human rights workers um, uh, bringing the project to me. You were already in human rights work. Yeah, that's right. As a sort of scholar and sort of uh, observer of, of loved ones studying the human rights world for a while. Observer of loved ones, did you say? Yes, yeah, so I, I got involved in this primarily because of my wife, who comes from a country that suffers from a long history of human rights abuses. And, and so the book before this was a really a study of the lives of human rights workers and the, the sort of traumas they go through doing what they do. Oh, your background's in literature, though. That's right. To some people, I guess to many people, it's puzzling that an English professor <laughs> writes books about these things. But for me, they seem like they're the same thing. And in fact, there was one night where it all kind of came together. I was at that time a literary critic doing standard literary criticism. But in my personal life, I was you know, in Turkey meeting people who were involved in, in fighting against what were then pretty terrible abuses occurring during the war with PKK. And, and that's so the night, Kurdish... Uh, uh, right, the Kurdish uprising. Right. And uh, one night we were in this apartment in Ankara, and it was, it was like two in the morning, and everyone was chain smoking, and it was it was getting late, and so people were getting a lot more loose with their tongues, and and they just started telling me all these stories of the things they'd been through, and it occurred to me both that these stories needed to be told, that these were amazing stories, but also that the work they were doing as human rights workers was basically the work of storytelling, that human rights work is about stories making people feel the pain of others, convincing people to take action, trying to convince a guard to let you into a prison. It's all about using words to change the world. And so it seemed to me that as someone who studies stories, this was actually importantly connected. Hmm. And this new book of yours, Evil Men, is about stories and storytelling too, in a way. You include these short excerpts from the accounts of the Japanese war criminals, the Chikiren, uh, who you talk to, but those short accounts are surrounded by your thoughts and the thoughts of others about what it means to talk about these things, what it means to ask for an accounting in the first place, and what it accomplishes. It's a complicated business. Yeah, I've had a lot of anxiety about writing this book because the last thing I ever wanted to do was just offer up some, some pornography of evil. These stories are shocking, but I'm suspicious of shock. I don't think that's ethically useful. The last thing we need is another series of shocking tales of, of human abjection. I didn't want to write a book that would appeal to voyeurism. I think there's, there's one theory of, of this sort of thing which says the reason people read books like this, the reason we watch films and read books about horrific murders and genocides is because we have the privilege of living boring lives. And... We feel like our days pass where not much of stake happens. And while we seek security and we seek stability naturally, there's some part of us that wants to feel like we're involved in something grave and serious. And if we can't get them in our own lives, we get it parasitically by feeding on the suffering of others, by feeding on the stories of the trauma of others. And if that's true, and if that's why I'm writing this, and if that's why people are listening to it or reading it, that's sad. And that's that's. That's a sad fact about humans. So that's one worry, but it's also possible to think hopefully about it, to think that we gather around these stories of suffering 
for communal healing and to understand the pain of our own lives. You think both are true? I think so, ultimately. I think, I think human motivations are incredibly hard to, to break up, and I think, I think probably both are true. That's right. There's a phrase uh, you just reminded me of uh, from someone you quote in the book, Eva Hoffman, mm-hmm. who describes this desire to be close to, to hear the stories of uh, trauma victims, specifically Holocaust survivors, as a desire for existential grandeur. And yes, this sort of significance envy. Yeah. I can't help but think that's true. And I think, honest, to, to be super honest in this interview, I mean, I think it's part of why I feel like treating these subjects in a radio show, because they feel important and they make me feel like I'm doing something important. And I, you know, I feel disgust with myself that that's the case, but I think it's really true. And I think what I, so the first couple of years I had these tapes sitting in my office and, and I, they were like this pile of toxic waste I couldn't deal with. And, and I didn't write about it and I thought maybe I never would because of that word. I, I just couldn't get over it. And, and finally I had, a, I had a friend who's a photographer who does similar work and he said, you know, you just have to accept that, that people are complicated and, and some of our motivations come from places we'd rather not see. But that doesn't mean the other motivations aren't true and real. And, and it's not also true that you want to share these stories because it matters to get history right. It's a respect to the dead to get history right. It's, 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 it's important to fight people who are denying these things. And, and that you want to affirm that this is a tragedy, that you want to affirm our deepest values by publicly lamenting what happened. So when I ask you to tell that the story that got to you the most or that still troubles your nights, and you told me the story of the man, what was his name again? Kaneko-san. Kaneko-san. The man who, as a young soldier in China, had participated in the murder of a, a woman and her child. Um, when you tell that story, and I'm sure I'm not the first who's asked you to tell it, what goes through your mind or what goes through you as you're telling it? Probably what's most disturbing is how that's changed over time. So the first time I told that story, I'd just come back from the trip, and I was trying to find friends to talk to about it, and it was really weird because nobody wanted to hear. I'd be at a cocktail party, and people were like, so what have you been up to? And I'd I'd start telling them these stories, and they'd they'd walk away. Nobody wanted to hear these things, and, and I had this obsessive need to talk about them. And so I finally found a friend who who was doing this sort of work and he sat down with me and listened to me tell that story among others and it was like a therapy session I mean it had like a kind of psychosomatic response as I was telling the story my body temperature dropped and I started trembling it was it was really raw and now you know I've told that story a lot of times and now telling it to you I mean this is the awful awful but frank truth what goes to my mind is what's the most effective way to to convey this story, uh, what techniques are going to make people feel this more intensely, and have gone from a kind of respectful, deep engagement with the experience of it to a kind of technical performance. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's troubling. Mm. Some years ago, I met uh, an Auschwitz survivor who had. Um, known, who had been essentially saved by Josef Mengele, 
to work with him, not doing bad things. She was a painter, and he he made her paint or had her paint portraits of some of the people he was going to kill. Um, uh, and he spared her and her mother for that. And it's an amazing story. And when I tell people, uh, again, we're getting into a territory just like you where I, I really question my motives. I tell people because it's an incredible story, but also because in telling it, I somehow feel like I'm in possession of something special. Mm-hmm. I understand that. This might be slightly askew from what you're saying, but um, it reminds me of one of the, the things that was very troubling about our visit. It was an encounter with a Mangala-type person. We we met someone who was a vivisectionist during the war, who had I mean, his job, basically. He was good at his job. He, he, he would take captured civilians, and strap them to tables and teach people how to perform amputations or bowel resections or bullet removals on these people who were just civilians and they were unsedated because nobody wanted to waste that kind of medicine on Chinese people. They had no anesthesia in many cases. That's right. So they'd be they'd be dying screaming, and and he he would he would cut them into pieces. I mean, this is something from a horror show, from movies like Saw. Yes. And so we're going to meet this guy, and not only did we have the normal difficulty of finding him sweet and, and enjoying being with him and joking around with him, but, but one of the people we were traveling with got sick. And you know, we didn't know how to get involved with the Japanese healthcare system, so we went to him for medical treatment. So the same guy who'd used his role as doctor for one of the most unimaginable horrors was also using his role as doctor to fix somebody we were with, the same hands. And and it's hard to reconcile that. Was he part of that infamous so-called research facility uh, he unit? Was not. There were other vivisectionists, but but oh. um, but yes, yeah, so the most famous was Unit Seven Thirty One. Yeah, which was basically an industry of Doctor Mengele's guys who are like Doctor Mengele's, yeah, right. but many of them. Yeah, there were what thousands of Japanese doctors who the, the entire. I mean, if you, if you count the entire industry of it, which, which wasn't just doctors, but the support staff and all that. I mean, it was, it was tens of thousands, I think. Tens of thousands um, conducting these, as you say, horror movie experiments on living subjects, people they'd kidnapped, you know, people they'd hauled in there. Uh, and we could go on and on about the horrors of it, uh, you know, testing out biological agents on these people, infecting them with diseases, infecting the, the broader population with diseases as well, spreading plague and things like that. These were doctors. They were trained to take care of people. They weren't, you know, lowly grunts in the army who were brutalized into inflicting atrocities on civilians. These were doctors. How does that happen? They were professionals, and that was part of it. And many of them afterwards became highly respected leaders of major health corporations in Japan. And, and so to get into the psychology, that's really complicated. But one part of it was that they saw themselves in a role, and their role was the discovery of scientific knowledge for the greater good. And and this idea of the greater good has you know, been the, the sponsor of some of the greatest evils in human history. And they felt that they were having to kind of sacrifice it, that for this bold, brave cause of scientific knowledge, they would have to endure some difficulty with their conscience, but it was, it was almost heroic for them to do so. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's one thing to... 
talk about it in abstract terms, but they were taking people who were screaming and begging for their lives, strapping them to tables and cutting them to pieces, as you said. How does one think about the greater good at a time like that? I think they cling to it. Yeah. And one thing I, I probably should emphasize as I say these things is part of what's, what's so frightening about this is that these people were not psychopaths. I mean, these were not people who would have committed crimes in their own life. They're people who would have been good neighbors their whole life, good doctors their whole life. They're people just like me and you. And so whenever I find myself becoming revolted and judgmental, I have to step back and say, if I had been there, raised in those circumstances, subjected to those pressures, God knows what I would have done. And, and I think we have to temper our understanding of what they did by, by recognizing that it is easy for nations to turn ordinary men into monsters. It is easy to do so. There's an expert system they've set up to do it. I want to ask you about that system. But first, uh, a phrase that we hear a lot when talking about these people. They were normal. They weren't psychopaths. They weren't deviants. Uh, it was contextual, it was situational, and any of us could do it. Do you think that's true? Do you think any of us could do it? Do you really think you could have done that? I, I shouldn't say any. Um, and the most important qualification is typically you have to start with young men. I think the older we get and the kind of more stable we become as personalities, our capacity for resistance rises. But I do think it is surprisingly easy to dismantle a human personality doesn't take too long. You said young men, so both youth and male gender? That's right. I think both are important. You think women are more resistant? People often try to understand the causes of violence, and often that means looking at men, because the fact is, much if not most of the violence committed in history that we notice is male violence. This is not to say that women are morally superior, that men are inferior. It's just a fact. We, we have to come to terms with this fact. And there are a lot of explanations from the political to the sociological to the psychological. Basically, they all come down to one simple thing. In most cultures, to be a man in one way or another involves proving you're not a woman. That masculine identity involves rejecting the feminine. And that, that means built into the kind of core of who you are is a kind of preparedness for violence a preparedness to see as lesser or to want to expunge from yourself as dirty things that are considered feminine. And the same isn't true for women. It just isn't. In most cultures, it's not true that becoming a woman involves proving you're not a man. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. Um, if you fail to prove you're a man, what you are likened to uh, is a woman. Maybe you're a sissy, you know, but the idea is that you're feminine and that's bad. But women um, don't have to prove they're women in order to disprove the fact that they're men. Well, I, I think you know there there are different sorts of pressures to achieve femininity, but I, I don't think it, I, I, I'm almost certain for most people it doesn't involve um, across the population of of most women a rejection of what they understand to be the masculinity within them that has to be destroyed. Well, you don't you don't hear that many girls, I think, being teased. You're a man. You're a man. <laughs> Whereas if you, I mean, in, in many places, especially, you know, where it's a congregation of young men, it's almost constant. Right, right. Yeah, some, some term that uses femininity as an insult against men. So I think that's part of it. I think, I think, I think young men have, have been prepared by a kind of basic structural contradiction in their identity. 
That is really interesting. I mean, totally aside from the sociological fact that it's usually men, or it has been historically, who are sent into conflicts, and that now that we have co-ed armies, or that they're more common, you'll see women involved in atrocities or other kinds of offenses more often, you know, as we saw at Abu Ghraib. Certainly, certainly. You know, um, you said it's easy to break down a personality. What did you learn from these Japanese war criminals about the process they went through, uh, from the point that they were just sort of raw recruits to the point where they were killing and raping people in China? They all had different experiences, but in the end, it seemed like they fit into a pattern. And it's complicated, but I think it seems to break down into, into four steps, really, that nations and, and armies can use to take average men and turn them into monsters. And the first is the most important, which is you take a young man, and we've talked about this, it's important that it be a young man. The great American poet Herman Melville once wrote that all wars are boyish and fought by boys. You take a young man and you separate him from all of his normal moral guides and references, from his family, his friends, the institutions, the things he reads. Separate from him from all of that so that you can then rebuild him. And the first thing you do in rebuilding him psychologically is teach him to see the world in binaries. Basically, the world is us versus them. It's good versus evil. It's holy versus unholy. It's safe versus unsafe. And, and when you teach them to think in binaries, then you, you've got them in a position where they can see complicated problems and think there are simple solutions. And these simple solutions typically involve violence. The third step is, is to break them down physically, mentally, spiritually. You can do this through prolonged combat stress, through training, through hazing, and a number of ways. You subject these young men to a system of harsh and seemingly arbitrary punishments and rewards. And if you do that long enough, they begin to feel like they're not in control of their lives, not in control of their days. And, and once somebody starts feeling like that, they're going to crave control. They're going to crave that feeling of control. And the best and easiest way to get that feeling of control is often to dominate and hurt somebody else. So that's an important step in preparing them to injure others. And then the last thing that was pretty common among all these men was that it was really incremental. It was really step-by-step. Step. Nobody I met started off wanting to rape, wanting to torture, wanting to shoot children. They started off horrified at those ideas. But you start small. So when they first bayoneted, they bayoneted on, on practice dummies. Then they were taught to bayonet on corpses, stabbing the corpses until you couldn't recognize them. And that would nauseate them. They'd report feeling sickened and unable to eat but then eventually it got easier, and they were upgraded to bayoneting live prisoners, which was horrifying and shocking. They trembled and cried and wept, but eventually that became easier. And each step seemed impossible, but eventually became normal. And, and, and after a time, they got to this place where they didn't recognize themselves anymore. And the important, important point about that was that it started small, and militaries and, 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 and nations know this. They, know they have to break people into this process. If you look at human history, it does seem as though we can normalize anything. We have an amazing capacity to adjust to new moral realities. So what do you think about the comforting notion that we start out good and we have to be carefully taught, to quote 
a line from a song in the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical South Pacific about racism. We have to be taught to hate uh, or, by extension, to, to kill. I, I go back and forth on this. On the one hand, I remain convinced that's true because one clear fact that emerged from all these conversations was that it took work. It took work over time. It took an educational system that trained them in, in emperor worship and militarism. It took a culture that trained them in racism against Chinese people and Koreans. It took years of preparation. It took intense labor. Freud believed that, that basically man is aggressive by nature, that he famously said, man is a wolf to man. And we have this idea that once you release people from civilizing constraints, they'll just tear each other apart, loot and pillage, because it pleases us to be aggressive. I, I, part of me doesn't think that's true at all. It's, in fact, carefully manufactured. But then you spend enough time looking at these things and reading these stories, and it's, it's hard to hold on to that hope. It's hard to, hard to have a lot of faith in a species that seems so bent on self-eradication. Hmm. So, Jim, you just described a process that's very systematic, that's very well worked out, that was carried out uh, with these Japanese soldiers, you know, by the Japanese military. Who came up with this? Because I'm tempted to say if, if we're just malleable clay, then it's the sculptor who's really to blame. I think it's it's something we've worked out over centuries of barbaric cruelty to, to each other in war. I think militaries do it differently. Some some actually um, are quite good at teaching military honor. And that's one important thing to remember in this, is that uh, militaries can be the source of genocidal crimes, but done right, it, militaries can inculcate, they can train their soldiers in these ideas of, of virtue and, and a warrior's honor. And, and that can push people in the other direction. There are examples of wars where these crimes are less. So, so it's, I think militaries have learned over the years that they can create the murderers they need through these techniques, but, but some have worked to do differently. Well, it sounds like in the case of the Japanese Imperial Army, uh, someone was saying, we're going to train these guys to kill civilians. It sounds like the process you just described, you know, bayoneting prisoners. Uh, Absolutely. They were encouraged to rape, yes? I mean, that wasn't just free. Officially, officially it was not allowed. Officially, they could get in trouble. Uh-huh. But, but they were, by all accounts, uh, minimally, senior officers would turn a blind eye. Maximally, they would, they would uh, in some cases, even provide condoms. And, of course, they had the institution of the so-called comfort women, uh, these what, brothels, is that the right word, of, of sex slaves who were... Basically sex slavery camps. I mean, the sex slavery camps. Beggar description. Uh, Korean women and Chinese women. That's right. Young women who were kidnapped or tricked, otherwise coerced into essentially years of daily sexual slavery to these men. One of the ingredients in being able to, you know, become a systematic genocider like this, a killer, I imagine, is to to cease to see your victims as human. And you say that at least in the um, these research facilities where they were conducting these terrible medical experiments on living subjects, they referred to the people as logs. Logs. That's right. Logs. Does does language have that power? Can can simply using a word like logs make you less sensitive? You see it in, in almost every conflict of this sort. In the Rwandan genocide, uh, kidnapping a woman and raping her was considered taking a wife. 
um, in the Holocaust, there were all kinds of euphemisms about um, what was essentially genocide and murder. People are constantly trying to find ways to to hide what we're doing with language, and, and you'd think it wouldn't work, right? I mean, if you're if you're killing a human in front of you, what does it matter if you call them a log? But in some basic level, it, it helps. It helps people if they can use metaphors to reimagine what they're doing as somehow less violent, less evil. Uh, it's just one of the tools people use. Language, language makes it easier. I reckon one of the things you don't want to think about is their name, their biography, their individuality. Absolutely. That's right. That's an important point. This may seem like a weird question, but have you ever imagined yourself as a victim in these circumstances? That's an interesting question. I had a chance to talk to a group of comfort women when this project was set up, and normally I'm the kind of person who follows all deadlines and gets everything taken care of, but this was a, a series of meetings that were being set up for me that I I kind of just missed my deadlines and and, and messed up the schedules enough that I eventually never met with them. And, and at the time, I wasn't entirely in control of why I was doing this and didn't understand why I was unable to get it together. But I realized that for me, there's something kind of, I don't know if the word's terrifying, about entering into the perspective of the victim, of the survivor. Oh. And it's, I think it's, in some ways, it was easier for me to talk to the perpetrators. Oh, Yeah. Uh, the one reason I ask is because when I when I hear these stories, I don't know how odd I am, but I do see myself in that situation. What would I do? What would it be like to be dragged into one of these, you know, horrible torture chambers? You know, what would I say? Is there anything I could say to to arouse some pity? You know, mm-hmm. knowing what you know about how the killers, the torturers operate. Do you think there's anything a victim can do? In in most of the cases that were described to me, there's nothing. There's nothing. The decision's made, and it's got nothing to do with the victims or the, the, the families, the survivors. Everyone's everyone's really helpless. Occasionally, you'll hear a story about some kind of pause or some kind of connection, some kind of moment when when someone's about to hurt someone else and they see the humanity of the other. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But I don't, I don't, ultimately, I don't think it's really about what the the victim does. I think it's about whether or not some of what's left of the perpetrator's humanity bubbles up in those last moments. Mm. I think sometimes seeking sympathy just generates more anger. Mm. Hmm. So I guess the answer to my what I said was a weird question is you don't have dark thoughts about being in those circumstances yourself. Uh, now that you've put the thought in mind, <laughs> I probably will. I, I've, I've, I sometimes think about that in the sense of protecting my children. Yeah. Or, or yeah, I guess the, another version of the question would be, do you ever imagine darkly that, you know, someone you love could be in that circumstance? That, that I, I worry about. I, I, I have thoughts about that. And, and again, anyone, anyone with a kid, knows that fear. And so I, I, yeah, that's tough. That's tough to think about. Do, I mean, is it healthy to guard against these thoughts or should we go there? Should we go to these places? Is going there part of our moral responsibility? I think it can be. I think it's important 
for us to try and enter into these perspectives. I think there there could be a kind of danger in a, if one gets involved in some sort of morbid, uh, I don't know, not, the word's not titillation, but kind of morbid self-laceration that's more about the feelings one wants to feel and less about trying to see from the eyes of the other. Mm. If that makes any sense. Mm. Uh, what do you make, though, of the use of violence for entertainment? I mean, you mentioned the movie Saw. There is this genre or subgenre some people call torture porn, extremely graphic films. I think they're all aimed at young audiences and include awful scenes of people being tormented. The bad guys usually lose, at least temporarily, until the next, until the sequel comes out. And they lose again. I mean, so some could say there's moral order in these stories, but before the before the bad guys are defeated, you get to watch a lot of, you know, mayhem. So again, there's a couple different ways of looking at this. Some people, like Freud, for instance, would say the reason we watch these films is because at heart we are aggressive animals that want to take what we can get, and that involves dominating others physically, sexually, in any way you can. But we live in a world that doesn't let us do this. We live in a world that constantly asks us to be civilized when really we're just brutes. And so we have this need, this need to enact these violent fantasies, and we get them in film, we get them in books, and we can do them then because it's, it's safe. It, it doesn't say anything bad about me. If I go see a horror movie, I just wanted to be scared. I wasn't, I wasn't doing these things. So we can safely retain our sense of ourselves as decent human beings while allowing our most awful interior impulses chance to play. That's one way of looking at those things. But there are lots of different theories, some, some which makes it seem quite harmless, some which simply say, you know, we are creatures that seek cognitive stimulation. We seek variety. We, especially if we have relatively contented lives without much going on that shocks us, we actually are designed as creatures to seek difference and seek shock and seek stimulation and these are just these are no different from roller coasters in that sense and that makes it seem more morally neutral also isn't there something of a survival instinct here to watch dangerous scenarios to look at things that could kill us and try to figure out how we might react and a lot of these stories by the way in these movies show at least one heroic character figuring a way out mm -hmm. so, so some would say that these these ultimately are designed either to appeal to kind of evolutionary programming to to read complex emotional and violent situations. Um, we we are designed as a species to seek these out precisely for a survival advantage. Some would say it's because it's because of the payoff at the end that that we allow ourselves to sink ever deeper in the horror of it because there's punishment and retribution. So we we get that satisfaction. And others others would say it's because we basically still live with the experience of being prey, even though we are mm. dominant in this world. <laughs> built into us is a sense of being prey, and and we invoke that in these films because it's a fear that's deep in us that we don't acknowledge, and, and we invoke in these films to, to play it out and get rid of it, to kind of banish it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They all seem like reasonable ideas to me. Yeah, I think, and, and maybe as you pointed out in, in one of these earlier questions, maybe all are true at the same time. Mm. Your book is, is full of um, fascinating um, scholarship and writing about these questions from a variety of perspectives. You seem to be a kind of broad-minded guy, willing to entertain all the ideas. 
That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> I think others have, have frustratingly wished that I had the kind of mind that could take a stand on one or the other issue. Well, it, it's interesting. The book, um, you know, you did this deliberately. It's obvious you did this deliberately. You took a subject that um, is gigantic and impossible, you know, to, I think, definitively settle. I mean, who who really could could say the last word on these things? And instead you do a lot of introspecting about the difficulties of, say, taking testimony and getting to know criminals or, you know, murderers and what it means to retell these stories and is it good or is it bad to repeat them? Does it desensitize us? Does it compartmentalize? Does it commodify? There's a lot of second guessing in this book, but that was your purpose, right? Yeah, because I think it's, I mean, first of all, because I, I, as I said before, I did feel anxious and guilty about being the one who was going to tell the stories of these victims, but also because I think I think it's useful because I think we all ultimately face this question. I mean, all of us, just if you watch, you live in the world today and watch the news. I mean, we are all confronted with the question of what we're going to do with the horrors we see around us. How we're going to feel about them? Are we going to talk about them? What's appropriate? What's sensational and exploitative? I think that's just a fact of anybody who lives in, in our current media culture, and so. Um, it just seemed like this was a slightly amplified version of that of that series of questions. Yeah, and you raise another big question that hovers over any discussion of these issues, and that is, where does guilt stop? Does it stop with the guys on the ground, these soldiers who were made to do, in some sense, what they did by the system? Does it stop with their superiors, or does it stop essentially nowhere does it go up often into the society that is authorizing these actions or benefiting even if we don't really like to think about it Mm -hmm. you know i interviewed um joshua oppenheimer the documentary filmmaker a few weeks ago have you seen his movie the act of killing i haven't yet everyone's telling me i need to there's part of me that just doesn't want to but i know and i know i have to at some point it's completely understandable that you don't want to uh, but, you know, we talked about guilt and innocence, and he said, you know, look, I mean, though his movie's ostensibly about these mass killers in Indonesia, we reap the benefits of economic, you know, exploitation in places like Indonesia. We're implicated. I mean, it's something people say all the time. Just how can a single psyche carry all this around at once is my question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think if if one were to look at it in a kind of sternly moral way, we are responsible for crimes immeasurable, each of us, because of the privileges we enjoy based upon the violence that's been done to others. And the fact that we aren't doing everything that we can to stop it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're feeble actors. We do yeah. relatively little. Even, even people yeah. go to war protests, I mean, all they're doing is taking an afternoon off to march. Exactly, yeah. We do virtually nothing, and we benefit. And so this kind of guilt can be tremendous. I think... We do what everyone does. We do, in some ways, what the we talked about those doctors do. We have to we have to find other ways of justifying ourselves. If we held these facts before our consciousness all the time, I think we'd go crazy. Does doing the kind of work you do, getting deep into these subjects, um, you know, talking in this case to perpetrators, maybe in other cases to victims or to human rights workers? writing about this, you know, recording these events for posterity, does it make you feel more or less guilty? More, definitely more. And guilt is, I think guilt is mixed in with a lot of 
other difficult-to-name emotions. It's gotten to the point where my wife now tells me I can't do this sort of thing anymore. She wants me to write my next book about puppies or <laughs> babies or something really pleasant. Um, Why does she tell you that? What's she seeing? It's. I mean, part part of me is always hesitant to talk about. It some people will ask, like, how was it? How did how did it affect you to write this book? And and I can talk about that because it, it was it was hard. Um, but there feels like there's an incredible narcissism to even for a moment start talking about how this makes one um, emotionally troubled because I'm talking about epochal horrors and, and, and torture and suffering beyond magnitude that others have suffered. And so even for a moment to say, well, there's things such as vicarious trauma and secondary traumatization feels gratuitously narcissistic. So I hesitate typically in, in answering questions that way, but but it's true. I mean, it's it's, you know, if one keeps the fact of death and the fact of widespread cruelty in front of one's eyes long enough, it can it can begin to distort how you see things. How so? We can always look at the world with a a generous gaze upon our, our, our uh, the people who surround us, and it's also possible to look at the people around us and to understand that we could all be doing something very different if our resources were threatened. Well, what what is it your wife is seeing, though, in you that makes her urge you to do something, you know, more anodyne next time around? <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say, there was a period where this was hard, and, and there were some kind of, I guess you'd call them psychosomatic stress reactions that had to be worked out. Oh, really? Wow. But again, I mean, there are people, that's partly because, you know, basically, I mean, I'm an, I'm an amateur at this. I'm an English professor. The the man I went with, Adam Adele, he's he's a photographer. He's He's been to, you know... Darfur, they're, they're friends I have who work at the Center for Victims of Torture. They're professionals. And for them, it's second nature. But I think I am like most people. I'm like most people who, who would read this book in that I'm not prepared. I'm not a professional. I'm just, this is not what I live with every day. And so to take this on temporarily is difficult. Mm. You think those professionals, though, can really steel themselves against the ultimate impacts? And they have a hard time, too. Uh, certainly, but what they're able to withstand is far beyond what everyone else is. I mean, I, I have a friend whose job is basically to, every day, nine to five, she wakes up, her job is to take testimony from torture survivors. Oh, wow. That's her job every day. And ah. it's going to be your job for as long as she can foresee. I could handle that job maybe a day, but that's what she's going to do year after year. What she say about the effect on her then? I think most people who do this sort of work, um, they, they understand it. They're a community. They they work together. They they employ therapists and, and, and support groups because it's it's brutal. I would think that part of what's brutal too is after the umpteenth person, and you're sitting in your office saying next, it becomes routine. Right, and that that's and when these things become routine, it's it's either because someone's burned out and needs to stop, or because they've achieved a kind of balance that they can maintain. Huh. Huh. Well, part of what is horrible, and your book gets into this too, in atrocity, is not just the big, awful nature of events, morally and viscerally, but it's also that they're humdrum in some ways. They can be. You know, I remember seeing a video, I wish I hadn't seen it, but a video was taken in Rwanda during the genocide there. And there were some guys standing around talking in a street, uh, and they had bloody machetes. And behind them, barely visible, was a guy who they'd hacked up, still alive, uh, just sort of 
you know, reaching up with his remaining arm for help, and no one was paying any attention, and it just looked so ordinary, you know? Something horrible had happened, and it was also just part of day-to-day life. It was just another image that you see. I mean, speaking personally, I find that to be among the most ultimately upsetting and nauseating things about it all, how it can be both momentous and kind of prosaic at the same time. It's funny you say that, because before you said that, I was going to say what's what's more upsetting is when, when it becomes fun and competitive, and they became fun and competitive, these men. I oh, mean, well, yeah, that is more horrible. But, but actually, actually, I think you're right. I think, I think, that's, I think you know, people competing and about who they'd killed or how many they'd raped, I mean, that's, that's horrifying. But, but um, maybe there's something about what you're saying, that, but at least that's kind of being connected to the fact that something significant is happening. Whereas what you're describing is people who, who've, who've gone even past that. That, that it's not even doesn't even register as worth any kind of elevated emotion. Well, yeah, horrible that these guys took it so casually, but also horrible. I'm thinking. Um, well, I, something tra- traumatic happened to me the other day. I won't get into the details, but the weird part for me is that one of the weird parts is that it, it is both it was both shocking and a big event. And simultaneously, life went on. I saw something horrible, and everything else is normal. And I can't square those two things. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's something that we all live with. I mean, you know, when I was writing this book, I was thinking about a traffic accident that I almost had. It's like you are moments from mangling another person or dying, and then and then you're not, and then it's back to the norm. I think for these men, one moment they are in front of a body they've helped mutilate, and then they're and they're trying to find lunch. And I think the, the, the chaos of that is something we all have to live with. Mm. Well, you know, I was thinking it, it applies to the perpetrators who shrug off these things, but it applies to the people hurt by these acts, too, because they go back to normal life in some way. I mean, you can see these things, and then you can, a moment later, be doing something mundane. Um, or you can talk about them. So you, you write, for instance, listening to someone talk about how they killed a child is an unsettling experience in part because it doesn't feel unsettling enough. That was part of the difficulty of this trip is that because we were traveling, so much of it involved just finding a, a you know public transportation, trying to make sure you got some good food, just getting around, doing stuff. And more than half of our mind was occupied with that sort of thing all the time. And then the other half would be involved with these historical, momentous atrocities. And we would just shift back and forth between them. And so, you know, you could, you could find yourself listening to the, you know, now the third or fourth man describing murdering a child, and, you, and, and you're, you're no longer present to it. You're thinking about whether you're going to be able to catch the last train home or, you know, what you're going to do with this material, whether it's going to be easily translated. or It's all these banal considerations that make you just feel awful. But I mean, I think we just we all live in these two worlds simultaneously. We can we can really be present to the depth of emotion and, and and the depth of suffering of others, and simultaneously occupy the most superficial self-concerned stances. And they can happen at the same time. You know, we we use language to try to convey the gravity of these things. In fact, we we use language to try to push 
these things beyond language. We say they're unspeakable or even unthinkable. But that's a lie. We're speaking them, right? I think it, I think it captures uh, one of the moral problems we have with this. Because on the one hand, we want to say these things occupy a special category. They don't fit into our daily humdrum lives. They don't fit into the words we use to talk about being upset at our spouses or being scared because we were in a car wreck. They, they're something other. And so we want to call it that. We want to respect it that way. And, and sometimes that leads to people saying you can't talk about it, you shouldn't talk about it. I mean, there have been very well-respected people all over the world who said you can't talk about the Holocaust because when you put it into those common words, you're shrinking it, you're translating it, you're making it into something ordinary, and it wasn't. Even giving it a handy term like Holocaust. Right. I mean, there's been a lot of contention even about that word. And, 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 I, and I understand that, and I respect that. But it's also true at the same time that we know we have to give words to these things, that leaving them unspoken is a kind of trauma, and it's a disrespect to the dead, and it allows liars to continue lying about what happened. And so we're caught in this paradise. We're caught in this, this need to say, these things are beyond the words we have, but also having a moral duty to find words to share it with others. You titled your book Evil Men. Tell me about that title. It's something I worried about a bit because I think the, the end point of the book is hopefully that people will question what that means. Because evil tends to be such a dismissive word. Evil, evil tends to be a word we want to use when we're ready to stop thinking. We don't want to think about these people anymore. We don't want to think about their motivations. We want to dismiss them as evil. Evil is, is another word that helps us get ready to hurt other people. It's a word we use when, when we want to do violence to others. It's not a good word. It typically does not do much good for us to call things evil. My hope was the title in the book could get me as a writer and maybe some people reading it to a place where we could say, okay, maybe that's a place to start. That place where we're ready to reject and ready to dismiss and say something is beyond the human and it doesn't require more thought, maybe actually now you get there and instead of ending, you begin. And that was the hope with the book. Hmm. Do you ever use the word evil without, say, quotation marks yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing how fast we fall into that language. It's, it's the language of ultimate rejection, and it's the language we use all the time. So you and, use it, you say, that's evil? Yeah, yeah. And then, then you know, I catch myself and try and be uh, more humane and understanding of those who, who I might want to dismiss. Interesting. So you you want to be more humane to the, quote, evildoers. Yeah, because I think we, we often are so trapped in our own sense of our own righteousness. Uh-huh. It's, 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 that's the easiest thing to do. Uh, I mean, the word evil is either a comic book word or it's a theological word, too. It pushes it off into this absolute realm of, you know, grand narrative, right? Mm, that's right. And it's not so much something we can even talk about or, or wrestle with or try to subdue once it once it's pushed into that area. Right, yeah, it just becomes a matter of final judgments. Right, right, yeah, it's up to God, right? <laughs> God or Superman, depending on whether it's theological or, or comic book. Um, you have been working in, in human rights for how long? A little more than a decade. And, and you teach human rights at... Human Mac rights and literature at McAllister College. At McAllister College. What do you see as the goal of all this work that you're doing, ultimately? I think when I was younger, I would have said something about making the world a better place. And part of me wants to believe that, but especially when you look at the world of human rights, I mean, there's a world of a lot of mistakes, a lot of good intentions have gone awry. I think in the end, it's, it's more about 
wanting to be the person you always wished you could be and creating a language and a practice in the world, this world of human rights, that lets people have that publicly, that enables them to stand for the values they want to stand for. And it may not make things better in the end. It really may not. But at least it'll give people a chance to embody the values they want to embody. So you know that sounds self-serving, right? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I thought it sounded rather self-critical. Oh, did it? because, Because what it means is, in the end, you have to accept that you are probably not really helping anybody but yourself. I see, I see. So, so we're saying exactly the same thing. I'm just pointing out that the image you just painted is of a self-serving person. and right. not, right. th- not that you're being honest enough to say so with self-serving, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can only say, um, go forward, Jim, in perpetual doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That seems to be my home. James Dawes is the author of Evil Men. His other books include That the World May Know and The Language of War. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. And uh, before I sign off today, I want to take a moment to clarify uh, some remarks that I made during the interview that might have left the wrong impression, specifically when I said this. Well, you don't, you don't hear that many girls, I think, being teased. You're a man. You're a man. <laughs> Whereas if you, I mean... In, in many places, especially, you know, where it's a congregation of young men, it's almost constant. Now, I got a thoughtful and very passionate response from a listener after the show who pointed out that she, as a girl, had been mocked for being a, quote, tomboy and had suffered a lot of rejection for being perceived as too masculine. And uh, she felt that I was minimizing that kind of experience on the part of women I didn't mean to do that, so I'm quite chagrined that that was the interpretation. Uh, I'm not always so good at formulating my thoughts on the on the run, as it were, and in this case, I definitely fell short. But the thought that was forming itself in my head and that I didn't articulate uh, was a little different, and it's that the way that guys haze each other, you know, with insults like girl and lady and sissy and bitch and all kinds of other feminizing terms sends a pretty unmistakable message that to be a woman is to be weak and inferior, subservient, even contemptible. And that to make a man of someone, you have to teach them to fear and loathe that side of themselves, to stifle it and snuff it out by just about any means necessary, including bullying. And when you do that, you may lay the seeds of external aggression and violence, not to mention misogyny. I think that is closer to the point that Jim Dawes was making, and uh, it is what I wish I'd express more fully. You know, l'esprit d'escalier, as they say. Also, uh, another note on the show, there was an additional part of that very interesting interview with Jim Dawes that was not included in the cut-down version that we just heard. I'll go ahead and post that extra bit on our website, which is 7thAvenueProject.com. You can always go to that website to learn more about the show and listen to past programs, so I highly recommend it. In any case, I'll be back next week.